From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's November 4th, 2015. I'm Michael Lodemark, one of the show's producers. In this week's first segment, you'll hear a Q&A from our recent sneak preview of Hitchcock Truffaut, the new documentary by Kent Jones. Based on the seminal interview book of the same name, the film is part adaptation, part tribute and features interviews with some of cinema's most influential figures, like Martin Scorsese, Olivier Assayas, and David Fincher. Following the screening, Kent Jones, who is also director of the New York Film Festival, joined Film Society favorite Noah Baumbach on stage for a discussion. Hitchcock Truffaut opens in select theaters December 2nd. Let's go now to their conversation. I thought, I mean, I was, I'm sort of, actually don't know this, uh, but I was sort of curious if, to hear how you kind of came to these two filmmakers yourself, just through your own life and also, um, you know, and then subsequently the book, you know, and sort of how, and maybe you could talk also to sort of you getting interested in movies in your life and sort of how these guys factor into that. I got interested in movies through watching, through movie stars. And so my generation, um, I'm talking about, you know, my father was in World War II, and um, I think that a lot of people of my generation, and this is a big part of what film culture is, I think, were attracted to cinema of an earlier era because it put them in touch with, um, first of all, it was on TV all the time. Um, you would watch it with your parents, and then you had the experience of something connected with the way that they lived their lives and with the way that my grandparents lived their lives. And Bogart was really a big thing for me when I was young and was very, very attached to what, you know, my father and the way that he moved and the way that he behaved. And um, I, I associated them. I didn't think of it in that way at the time. But then I started getting interested in them in different ways, in movies in different ways. And so... Um, there was this TV series that Richard Schickle did called The Men Who Made the Movies. Um, it was like 1972, I think. It was on PBS. It was on every Sunday. And Cliff Robertson, who features prominently in your film <laughs> about Brian De Palma, um, <laughs> um, narrated it. And so one of the people was Hitchcock. And um, uh, I don't think I'd ever, I had seen any Hitchcock movies at that point, but I was really in you know, taken with him and with Hawks. And how old were you then? Like 12, 11, oh. something like that. Yeah. And then the book I got right around that time. And what Fincher says is my experience. You know, I had it and I just kept pouring over it and kind of looking at rereading different passages and looking at those photo montages. And seeing the actual layouts of them when I was in Paris researching this movie was was great because he did them all, you know, by hand and he realized he did them, for, he had to have done them from memory. So I do think that I've, I've never even really made a practice even now of looking at them, and, you know, kind of comparing them to the images on the screen. But I do think that they're slightly inaccurate, but that doesn't matter. Right, right. Know? Yeah, I don't, did you, I had the experience with the book. Um, How old were you when you got it? Well, I, I guess I must have been around the same time looking at it, f you know, for the, you know, I'd seen Hitchcock movies on television, and yeah. but my parents had it and but it was the same thing of like I actually experienced some of the movies through the interviews before I saw the movies I don't know if you had that uh. um yeah what you said yeah <laughs> I, I, is that clear what I said that's yeah. clear yeah I'm putting it together uh, in my mind and it's yeah. come out yeah yeah um <laughs> yeah um and and what about Truffaut? When did when did you get interested or or sort of come across him? I lived in a town with a bunch of movie theaters, which was cool, you know, because it was uh, near. I grew up in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and so that's in the Berkshires, and you know, it's between Williamstown, a college town, and then Down County is the fancy places, Lenox and Stockbridge. That's Norman Rockwell land, you know. Um, but there was a lot of you know, what do I want to call it, you know aesthetic hippie culture around plus you know the Leonard Bernstein connection plus theater in Williamstown where Jake's mom you know was every summer Blythe Danner um, and so um, 
I think that um, Truffaut, there were, there were movies actually, you know, actual movies would play in theaters back in those days. That doesn't really happen as much anymore. Um, in, in cause there were no multiplexes. Those came later. And so Day for Night I saw, and I was really pretty taken with it. Um, I don't remember what else, uh, what order. But um, there was a thing at that time um, when you were young too, you know, there was the whole like Truffaut, Godard, Lennon, McCartney thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that yeah. still happens sometimes, doesn't it? But probably less so now. I guess that the, yeah, and and Antonioni Fellini, right? That was another Antonioni one. Fellini. Yeah, yeah, that's right. There's like the smart choice, the right answer, and then the popular answer. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> and I've as I've gotten older, I've basically just come around to the popular answer. The popular yeah. answer, yeah, which <laughs> um, is which is the right answer after I, all, right? I yeah, I guess yeah. so. Um, were, you there, were you there at the, the screening of Arnaud de Bachan's movie in, in the festival, My Golden yeah. Days, when, he's, when he was talking about his Truffaut story? You know, he models his screenwriting on Truffaut's screenwriting. Oh, no, I, I actually didn't see the Q&As, but I saw the, the movie. Well, he said... Truffaut had a, was working on a screenplay with Jean Gruot and he read something he said, no, 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 you don't understand. He said, I'm not Antonioni. I don't want one idea for every four minutes. I want four ideas for every one minute. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, I, something I was interested in also having just made a documentary too is, is what, like what is a, the documentary for you, what does like the script look like? Like when you went into this for the first, you know, when you started, uh, like how much, how much do are you filming before you start shaping, or how much do you do you have a, um, you know, a, a, you know, how much did you know in advance? I suppose going into it. Um, I wanted to, I, w I listened to the tapes. There's 27 hours of them. I transcribed most of it myself, which was my way of listening to it. And then I identified the areas where I felt energy between the two of them. When I, that's a vague thing to say in a way, but it's also, totally it describes very specifically what, the way that I felt. I wanted to find where there was an emotion between them, where there was some kind of a, a sense of something passing between the two of them. And then after I did the interviews with people, same thing. And so we kind of started from the middle out in other words, that would be the dream thing, um, was, was really the nucleus of the film. And then from there, obviously, you know, I, what films, you know, how, what's the direction of things? Well, it seems like the right thing to do to focus on Vertigo. And then for different reasons, not just because Vertigo is great, but because it stands for a lot of different things and cross currents and then dreams flow into vertigo and then, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, I, I, I didn't want, I wanted to make a movie, right. you know. And, and in terms of your interviews with the contemporary directors, how, how much did they shape sort of your thinking about the, you know, either about the directors or about the book or the, or did you, I was also curious if you asked them all the same questions. Hmm. I had areas that I focused on and I asked them a lot of the same things. They're all people that I knew. So I wanted to, you know, so I, there were different things that I knew that they were going to focus on. I know that, you know, Olivier is not the kind of guy who talks about a scene in detail. Arno is, mm -hmm. and Marty is. Um, Marty tends to go in many different directions, and, you know, you, it's, he's, he's, it's always very surprising. Um, he always says, I don't, I don't have much time, you know, and then, and then, <laughs> He went, you know, two hours later, you're wondering if the, there's still enough room left on the card, you know. Um, um, Fincher's kind of the same. I mean, he was just like, I, he, his, you know, eventually Sion, his wife came in and said, like, gotta go, you know. But, um, um, you know, I was, um, I think that, again, it's like I listened to what people were saying and then I thought about how it interacted with what, you know, the, what was going on between the two of them, Hitchcock and Truffaut, and the images, and went from there. Yeah, I, I, was, um, I was thinking, and I, I've actually had this conversation with other filmmakers that, um, and it, and it's also w with the De Palma movie that I made. I've been asked questions to this degree of, but I actually find that I don't know if you found this, but the filmmakers 
often are, are kind of more interested in talking about filmmakers that are more unlike them. The, you know, yes, they're, they're interested in talking about anybody but themselves. Right, a lot of the and, and also like maybe the more specific, like the, the more obvious influences, you know, that the, I mean, it's just interesting, like, you know, a lot of these, the, the contemporary directors are not Hitchcockian, wouldn't be the first thing necessarily you would right. say about them. I mean, maybe you would about certain areas of Fincher, but the, um, but, but clearly they're all very passionate about, you know, those movies. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think, I mean, you know, there's only so much you can say about your own movie, right? right? I mean, in other words, you have to sort of like at a certain point, you're just sort of like, a, you know, I can't, I'm not going to, I made the movie, I'm not going to talk it. Well, you, you know. basically make something up that you say. Yeah, and right. And repeat it. <laughs> like we're doing now, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Energy. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the real answer My is, approach to the story. Yeah, yeah right, I just right. needed to get yeah. this out of me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if you were to ask Hitchcock, like, tell us what, you know, the, the, the ending of Vertigo when the, when the nun comes out and then Jim Stewart goes out, you know, talk about that. What the fuck would he say, honestly, right. you know? But um, I just, it, it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting. But when people are talking about someone else's work, it gives them a way of focusing. And then when they're talking about filmmaking in relation to it, it adds another layer, you know? Um, as you know from... You know, I mean, in the case of Brian, in your film, and you and I have talked about the the two films a lot. They're complementary in a really interesting way. I mean, you know, yeah. he's 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 talking about filmmaking, only he, but he is able to do it, you know, with his own movies. But even he, you know, when he's saying, well, you know, I mean, uh, when I shot the drill scene in body, in body Double, it's just like, I don't know, it just made sense to me, you know, <laughs> the way that you guys include that. The drill had to go through the, the floor. The drill yeah. had to go through the floor, you know. I mean, that's all there is. You know, of course he was going to drill the woman through the stomach, you know. He's not going to sit there and, and perform a, a psychoanalytic, you know, exercise on himself. Well, which is also what makes the, the book so kind of interesting is that it is because Truffaut is a critic but also a filmmaker it really that that filmmaker he, he finds a way to talk to Hitchcock that actually engages him and makes it it, it makes it about filmmaking and doesn't get into sort of you know the 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 stuff that you know he's not going to want to talk about yeah it's great when um Hitchcock says do you find it too much trouble to direct your actors <laughs> you know, and Truffaut's like, well, you know, I have an intermediary formula I like to take them out to dinner and talk to them and then incorporate some of their words into the dialogue. And Hitchcock's like, oh, you mean you have to write at night? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I found actually very moving in the, in the movie is that, um, is, is, is related to that is him talking about the, his concern, which you see again later in the letter, mm -hmm. of that he's been too trapped in, you know, in... in you know, on his path and the way yeah. he makes movies, yeah. <clears throat> there's something. I mean, so confident, obviously, and so. I mean, it almost just seems like fully formed. What is Hitchcocky, and what is you know what Hitchcock does in his movies? That to to hear him, kind of wonder if he should have tried it another way. You know, is is yeah, it's very touching. It's very touching and very interesting. I mean, it. Yeah. Um, I mean, because you see Hitchcock's influence in Truffaut in kind of very sort of straightforward mm -hmm. ways. I'm sure there's, there's a lot of nuanced ways as well, but I mean, he even just, you know, Bride Wore Black or things where he's really kind of like taking it on. But Hitchcock doesn't have that move in his movies, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's touching that he, that he was worried about that. I think it had to do with him thinking, well, you know, it, would I have been taken more seriously as an artist? Would John McCartan at the New Yorker have given me, have treated me with more respect? Would Bosley Crowther have been, you know, that right. kind of thing? And I, I um, because as Rick says in the movie, of course, he was a very, he was, must have been entirely confident in all of his choices within his own framework. But his own framework is finally vast. You know, I mean, that's the thing. That's, it's not a teeny tiny circumscribed world. He's not, and he's not like, he's not like Antonioni, not to <laughs> rag on Antonioni again, but I mean, you know, I mean, he's not 
narrowing things down to a point in terms of what existence is about. Um, and so his films to me just feel absolutely inexhaustible. I mean, you know, I've, di I've, I've just literally never seen a bad one. I mean, you know, you can argue some are certainly not masterpieces, but that's not the question. The question is, you know, yeah. and it, it has to do with his engagement with his art form, you know. It's interesting um, because you also focus, you, you focus on Vertigo and Psycho yeah. sort of the most of, of in terms of the movies. Um, uh, that he was sort of, he made both, I mean, in sort of two iconic movies and one totally not accepted in its time and the other like changed everything in the moment, you know, like hit the, hit the, the moment right on the head. And it's interesting to sort of think of it that way that yeah. he, you know, both, that he had both of those things happen, <laughs> you know, that, that uh, yeah. um, uh, to be both misunderstood and totally popular at the same time is mm -hmm. interesting about him. Yeah, it, it is. And it's also, it's fascinating that the same year that Psycho was made, La Ventura was made. Right. And he, Antonioni did the same thing. You know, right. his, he made his star, his, his ostensible star, the heroine, disappear. Um, and actually, that is something that we were dealing with in the movie. And then it just kind of sat there. You know, it was just, it, you know, Olivier talked about it. And it's just like, but it felt very academic. It, it didn't feel right um, for the energy of the movie. But it, it um, you know, what he did was, was, was something that just opened a door to, I don't even know what, you know. Uh, forget about all the movies that were made in the wake of Psycho. It, it, it really changed the, the, the way that we thought about stories, I think. We were talking about this before, but the, in terms of like, there's like Hitchcock's influence on cinema, and then there's Hitchcock's influence on, say, specific filmmakers. And in and, 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 um, the, the, the movie I made with about Brian, he, you know, Brian says he feels he's the only person who's actually continued yeah. in the Hitchcockian tradition. And I know what he means in a certain way because he made, mm -hmm. his movies in some ways are kind of connected to the same, almost sort of, to it's like, you said it better than I'm about to say it in the, in the lobby, but it's like, he, it's like he's, the, the idiosyncrasies of them, it's like he's more almost connected to the perversity of Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, obviously he does sort of stylistic things and, and, and narrative things that are very connected to Hitchcock, but you know, there was a time like in the, we were talking about like in the eighties, there were all these like movies, yeah. sort of final, really final analysis movies, and yeah. Yeah, things that were all like called Hitchcockian, but they're actually n not nearly as odd as Hitchcock. They're very yeah. conventional and in a way it was like the wrong it's the, it was like the wrong way to look at the influence in a way. Yeah, yeah but that's what Kiyoshi Kurosawa says in this movie, which I think is quite right. He's like, you know, the book is like a Bible, but I, I'm very careful to never ever repeat anything. Right, right. You know, because, uh, you know, he's, it's the deceptive thing that happens, like with Bresson's book about, you know, Notes on the Cinematographer. It's, it's, it's a great thing to read, but it's a prescription for how to make movies. I can't make heads or tails of it. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's, it's an odd, it's proper to Bresson. Right. You know, for him to say, well, this is the way you should all make movies. It's just like, okay. You know, I, I, and and there have been a couple filmmakers who've who've done that. I mean, I get the feeling there's a filmmaker from Kazakhstan named Darajan Mirbayev who's very very linked to Bresson, Hal Hartley, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. somewhere between Bresson and Godard, you know. Right. But um, with Brian, he did something that nobody else has done. I think he treated another filmmaker's work as a a world and a practice in and of itself. That's kind of unprecedented, I think, and and, and made his own. Um, built his own world alongside it, you know, right. yeah. out or out of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, do you see Hitchcock's influence now in, in movies? I mean, beyond the fact that it's just in the air? I don't know. I mean, it's what you said, you know, it's, it's, you don't, people, he's being so incorporated into film, you know, making that you don't even know. I mean, it's like right. saying, where's D.W. Griffith's influence, actually? Because he didn't, you know, he's not, he only started a little bit later right. um, 
I guess that um, you mentioned Fincher. I didn't really, you know, when I asked Fincher, I fully expected him to say, I don't really have much to say about Hitchcock. I don't really see a link between the two of them. I think that they're, they're involved with very different kinds of enterprises, but I do think that um, they have different approaches to their art form. But I think that um, when he said, I said, you know, have you ever read that book? And so he said, uh, just a couple hundred times, you know. And I mean, and so I thought that was interesting. I mean, in the sense that he, and I guess I would say whatever one can say about Gone Girl, when he's talking about Vertigo and he's saying, well, I think that the more honest story is her point of view. One can debate whether Gone Girl is an adequate vehicle for that, but there's something about it that does express the other side of that equation, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, do we have, uh, does anybody want to ask a question from the audience? Right here. What revelations were there in the audio tapes that weren't in the book that Jimmy Stewart had an erection? That's, <laughs> that's, a, that's a revelation right there. I don't know. I don't, you know, the, the thing is, there, it's, not, it's not a conversation that's, that's filled with revelations, I would say, um, in terms of, it's filled with a lot of insight into cinema and the practice of cinema. And, you know, I think that when um, he's talking about uh, rope, he goes into a lot of detail that's absolutely fascinating. Um, I think that the tapes are extremely different from the book because I think that what happened with the book was that Truffaut worked on it. It was translated into French. He really didn't understand English. Uh, Hitchcock did understand French. Truffaut did not understand English. And then I think that the, the, the book in English was retranslated back into English. And so Hitchcock was privately disappointed with that side of it. He never expressed that to Truffaut. But his humor and his spontaneity are not in the book. It's just, you know, not a question. Um, but I do think that also he, you get the feeling when you're listening to it that um, he didn't like to argue. Truffaut would bring up something that's a little bit, you would say, you know, there's a big thing about the wrong man, as you know in the book, you know, and Truffaut's laying down this whole anti-documentary thing, and oh, well, you know, it's not your kind of material, and it would have been a better film uh, if someone else had directed it, et cetera, et cetera. And he also lays on his anti-British number, you know, the way that Godard does in his Troyes du Cinema, too, you know. Um, and um, Hitchcock's w way of responding is, is interesting because he actually just doesn't want to argue. He just kind of goes very quiet. In the book, you have the impression that he's just kind of agreeing with him, which isn't quite yeah. true. Yeah. So, you know, other than that, the other revelations are like lunch. There's a lot of eating in the book and, and the tapes. Yeah. The difference between reading the book and making the movie? I was 12 when I read the book. <laughs> I've, um, I've gotten taller. Um, I've had two children. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, the book is, um, um, like I say, it's a, it's a different experience. The book is, is, the book is one of the great texts, you know. I mean, it's just uh, formative for anybody who's interested in, in movies. Um, but um, the emotional weave between them and also, you know, I mean, it's like after having spent a lot of my life looking at Hitchcock's films and living with them and watching them with, you know, my own, my friends and, you know, my, my, um, my family and re-experiencing them and, you know, uh, it's, it's different um, in that sense. I mean, like I say, you know, I think his films are inexhaustible. Yeah. Yeah. What made me think of Bob Balaban for the narration was that Bob Balaban was a very good friend of Truffaut's. Um, they got to be very, very close when they were making Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and I think that Bob actually acted as Truffaut's. He he actually did what his his character is doing in the movie. He acted as Truffaut's translator, and so um, and also um, because I wanted to stay within the realm of filmmakers, you know, Bob's made some pretty good movies himself, you know, Parents is good, My Boyfriend's Back, <laughs> um, you know, he's, and um, he was great. Great, well, uh, 
thanks a lot, Kent. And thanks for thanks for doing it, man. Um, <laughs> Where do you want to be? Where's this leading to? I mean, where's the growth potential? If there's a chance for what you hope for and you dream for. Next, we'll go to a Q&A with writer-director Rick Alverson, whose new film, Entertainment, opens here at the Film Society on November 13th. The film stars Greg Turkington, a.k.a. Neil Hamburger, as a failed comedian on a hallucinatory journey across the Mojave Desert. The unique road movie, which is by turns mortifying and beautiful, also stars Ty Sheridan, John C. Riley, Amy Simons, and Tim Heidecker, who appeared in Alverson's last film, The Comedy. Following its screening on closing night of New Director's New Films earlier this year, the director joined selection committee member Dennis Lim on stage at the Walter Reed Theater for a Q&A. Let's go now to their conversation. Um, I'll start with a couple of questions. Um, the comedian in the film uh, is a version of Neil Hamburger, this persona alter ego of, of Greg Turkington. Can you say a little bit about this de- decision to structure a film around him, uh, to structure this film in particular? I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about why this character in these landscapes, in this place. Uh, Greg Turkington has a, has a character uh, that he's uh, refined over 20 years called Neil Hamburger, and he tours 200 days a year and has done the slog that is um, sort of at the structural root of the movie, and, and the performances on stage are, are Greg's, and that's, that, that, that is a, it's a variation of the of Neil Hamburger persona. And the, me and... Uh, I, I'd, I saw him play in Richmond, Virginia, and where I live, and... Uh, uh, I, I just, it seemed, it, 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 the, the performances are kind of, they're relentless, but they're also sort of really cadence-based, and they go on for, you know, an hour, and your relationship to what, to the kind of comedy, it's repetition, to, it, it, it gets complex, you know, and, it, and it's sort of exciting the way that you change in the course of watching him perform, rather than, you know, for him to change. Um, and uh, so I saw him, I saw him performing, and I just the, the idea of uh, you know seeing that that sort of this 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 man out of time, sort of this this uh, disappointed with with the, the world around him, just walks off the stage. And um, we had uh, sort of joked about a two-lane blacktop meets Lenny sort of thing. So. Um, okay. Well, since you mentioned two-lane blacktop. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about this in relation to just the idea of um, a road movie or a road trip, you know, this idea of the Odyssey, um, which is a very kind of linear genre, a very focused one usually. Um, I think this film, just in terms of its rhythm and its feel and its tone, is so opposite to a road trip. I mean, it sort of cultivates the sense of a limbo, um, this you know sense of a loop even, and he's with the repetitions, and um, instead of you know looking for something or finding something, he's kind of in a way on un- I think unraveling, and the film becomes kind of looser in its structure as it goes. Yeah, and he's kind of caught in something. I mean, and there is sort of that recycling and those variations on 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 themes, formal and, and content, and uh, um, so, so. Were you thinking about the road trip and trying to do something in relation to that genre? Or I mean, I have. Uh, this sort of uh, pr- problem with, uh, and I, a lot of it has been exported through American cinema, uh, but it's an, this American uh, ideal and propensity for uh, boundless opportunity and unlimited belief, which has been a great fuel for us, but at the same time it's created serious problems um, because of the absence of contending with limitations, you know, and uh, so all of the movies that I've I've been involved in have addressed that in one way or the other, um, and so this sort of embraced a lot of the tropes and the cliches and the and the grammar of of a, a lot of you know uh, American American movies and uh, uh, metaphors and 
stereotypes and, and this sort of stuff, used them as raw materials, um, essentially. Um. You talked a bit about what intrigued you about this, you know, watching the Neil Hamburger act for an hour and how you change and how it's sort of premised on repetition. And was that something that you used in terms of structuring this film? I mean, there's a lot of repetition in the film, not just in the performances, but, you know, this, the, the calling... Um, and there's like certain recurring motifs. Um, can you talk a little bit about structuring this film? Uh, yeah, um, uh, none of the movies that I've done have ended in the scripted ending. You know, it's always been sort of a, a necessity of reconsidering everything and dealing with it tonally more than anything. So um, I, I sort of think of, of them more, more musically and tonally than I do uh, a necessary sort of literary, you know, plot line or through through line in the narrative, um, and so there has to be a lot of. And I think in independent, uh, you know, independent film uh, has to pay attention to the, the what it's given and the limitations and that sort of it, like its idiosyncrasies are, are that it can't reproduce everything because it doesn't have these, you know, somewhat unlimited means of the old old Hollywood system, you know, and the. Uh, so it has to has to do with what it's given, and then there's an innate conversation with environments and and uh, you know the problems in, in there, which are really exciting, you know. So, um, uh, but I'd be curious to hear you say a bit about um, how you see entertainment um, relating to your previous film, the comedy, which I think um, I'm sure some people here know it and have seen it. Um, you know, they obviously this film is about a comedian. Um, they both have these very like grand kind of definitive titles, um, and I think at certain points you're wondering how how to actually take these these titles. Um, did did entertainment kind of grow out of the comedy in some way? Obviously, I know that Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington, obviously, um, you worked with on the previous film as well. Yeah, I, I yeah, a lot of it was just that sort of uh, uh, just grew out of partnerships and friendships and that sort of thing. But uh, um, there definitely seemed uh, like it's almost an inverse to uh, elements of my last movie, The Comedy, which had this repulsion at its center, this sort of uh, obstinance uh, that, you know, traditionally we aren't, uh, you know, we, we like to find sympathy and access, you know, to, to an imaginary world through our protagonist, um, like this conduit. And, and I just sort of, you know the idea of blocking that off with just a, a reprehensible character that was and and creating sympathies around the character like what that would look like and what that would do was exciting and this is sort of a little bit of the inverse in that 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 you know the protagonist who wears this yellow cap like a, a siren on his head and he's sort of uh you know it, it is our the, the traditional access point of our sympathies or our pity or our sort of you know, but I mean, that's the initial axis, and then there's the the fun of wrestling with that, you know, um, and uh, interrupting it, and you know, dealing with the threshold of attraction and repulsion to both the character and to the events that transpire around the character, and where that authorship is, and that sort of stuff. Okay, we'll take some questions from the audience. Yes. I, I, I'd love to. Thank you. This person asked about the choices of locations throughout the film, specifically the more expansive empty spaces like the plain graveyard and the oil field. Um, I, I mean, they were sort of necessary beats in, in, in him being a, an audience, you know, and him being in this, 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 this eternal sort of cycle of, you know, uh, the, the, uh, you know the, the viewer and the performer sort of thing, that he, uh, which was, is inevitable. Um, but uh, the, you know, I mean, there's uh, the, the the ghost town is. I mean, these it just they they seem like cliches, and I think that that was an important you know, things that seemed like cliches or stereotypes or you know uh, um, worn out sort of metaphors of the transformational potential of the of the desert as a you know and and, and uh, the the vision quest and these sort of things. I mean, they were. You know, just trying to lay them all out, and and and, and uh, as as, uh, as something to, to to work with, you know, that bothers me and has always bothered me in movies. So I think that, you know, but the plane is something different. I mean, that is, uh, 
it's, it, it, it doesn't quite function as a, as a metaphor entirely, you know, but uh, um, which is fun and interesting and formally sort of uh, exciting, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll go to the back. This question was about the director's process working with actors. Uh, well, they, I, I have never, this is my fourth movie, and I have never uh, done traditional rehearsals. Um, uh, the, the performances work better when I, I understand who I'm working with and their, their uh, inclinations and you know, aspects of their personality and some limitations to their, to the, to their dynamics or, you know, the, uh, but um, it's, it's very exciting for me to have, to, to, to understand enough what I'm working with and then trust me enough that then we start shooting and, uh, you know, the thing falls apart in the right ways, you know, particularly in, 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 the, uh, in the dialogue or, or lack thereof. Um, none of the movies have had traditionally scripted dialogue, although they are, I do consider them scripts because it's all, um, it's all there on the page. Uh, um, but... I have I don't have much interest in the uh, dialogue as a narrative device. To to to, to uh, um, uh, it's more of a tonal thing for me. So um, you know, I mean, there is a there's a certain exciting amount of uh, just listening and being attentive on set and knowing when you have what you need. But I mean, we also don't do more than three takes or something. So um, it's all in the, in the preparation, I guess. Yep. I guess maybe to talk about just the, you know, the comedian is on, maybe to talk about the divide between the onstage and the offstage persona, because onstage obviously he's, it's, it's a version of Neil Hamburger, but offstage was um, a character that you created. Yeah, yeah, I mean me and Greg had so many conversations about this. I mean the, most of our conversations were text messages talking about the glasses initially. I, I, I didn't think the glasses needed to be on the offstage character and I'm very glad that we, that it, we ended up with them. But it, it, it created all kinds of other challenges to differentiate between the two. And uh, um, I think because he is essentially a kind of cult comedian, you know, the character. Um, and uh, that it was important that we we reached two audiences and uh, the people who had never who weren't, didn't have access to this character and the people who did, and uh, not necessarily satisfy each of them but engage each of them, you know. And so there was this dual consideration with the cut and um, a lot of the a lot of the the movie trying to, you know. I mean, some people have watched it and they 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 know the routine and so they 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 have access through that other people don't and then they have access to this this character that exists just inside the film so um and and the choice to call him the comedian was just a i did it, 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 neither me nor greg wanted to be a promotional vehicle for for um neil hamburger that it was you know it needed to have some sort of universal anonymity of of this this worn out performer you know which is in his character but it just has hopefully more uh, you know, longer legs with, with, with it being somewhat anonymous. This question was about the process working with composer Robert Downey on the film's score. Yeah, me and uh, uh, Robert Downey, uh, Bobby, uh, have been friends for a long time, and he, he, I played in a band with him, and uh, um, he... Uh, you know, it was it was exciting in the past. I mean, his stuff is more, um, s you know, synthesizer and, and uh, uh, electronic-based ambient kind of music, and, and uh, so we had some, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, more organic instruments, and, and essentially he'd give me files, and I'd throw them in the timeline, and I'd move them around a bit, you know, and uh, stack them, and uh, which was very fun, and uh, um, and he was. Uh, kind enough just to let me sort of, you know, do something with those raw materials that, that uh, he didn't necessarily intend. But, uh, um, yeah, I, 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 I like the score, too. I think it has, it has uh, you know, it has some, it, 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 it manipulates in a way that, that traditional scores in, in American films do. Um, but, uh, it, it, and so it allows me to work against that manipulation in other parts of the movie more. Um, 
Yep. This person asked about the choice to use very little dialogue. I think a lot of movies about exhaustion, and uh, I, uh, you know, uh, the character's exhaustion with that world, and maybe my exhaustion with media and uh, um, the onstage performance. The the the, the uh, Neil performance is, uh, you know, at the end of something. It's sort of you know, it's it's it pushes something to to a limit of uh, to, that it can only start to to repeat itself. You know, and uh, um, with that that vocal exhaustion, you know, it it it, it wasn't necessary to have a, you know, something that was. Uh, devoid of anything off stage, you know, and uh, those two identities and the, the idea that the identity on stage is his primary, you know, access to communication and uh, um, uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was, a, you know, there, there had to be a, a schism between the two and so. Could, actually, could you say a little bit about the visual style of the film and your, in working with the cinematographer? I mean, obviously, this is um, it, it's a film that has a very different look and feel from the comedy. Um, and I'm wondering if, if certain aesthetic choices that you made here, how you think they might relate to this idea of exhaustion? Uh, yeah, so L Lorenzo Hagerman shot it, and he, uh, he had shot a movie called Heli uh, last year, the year before. Um, and uh, he's a Mexican cinematographer, and... Uh, Amazing to work with, uh, but uh, highly formal uh, uh, about what he's doing. And in the comedy, it was you know I, I, uh, it, there's a lot more handheld work, and it's sort of a scrappier sort of, you know, it it, it does resemble uh, you know uh, independent m movies of the past 15 years or something. And uh, I it was you know there there was it was important to use the you know the, something uh, you know a cinemascope and uh, that just reduced the character to insignificance, you know, and and at uh, some sometimes, and uh, just because it has longer reach into the history of 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 you know movies in America. This question was regarding the comedian's routine in the film. Was it adapted from Turkington's existing material? Uh, no, that's those are those, that's Greg's routine. That's that's the Neil Hamburger routine. Um, but uh, uh, it, it was, uh, uh, you know, I was more interested in like tonal elements of it, like the exaggerated sort of things, the repetitions and that sort of stuff. So we shot a lot of, of him performing. And uh, uh, while we brought audiences in, they didn't know what to expect. So a lot of what we're hearing is, is you know, a, a genuine reaction. Um, and the same to, the, to Ty Sheridan's character, the, 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 the uh, Eddie the Opener. The clown. Um, those are real reactions to people. Much preferred the uh, masturbating clown to to the, to the, the, the Neil. This question was about the audience reactions. They wondered how it makes Alverson feel if some people laugh and some people don't. Um, uh, you know, I mean, there's. It's. I, I hope that it's it's engineered in such a way that it doesn't need to be funny. You know, but that it 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 can. You know, I think that. Uh, which is a you know something that we me and and, uh, and and the team put a lot of work into um, uh, you know when people say well it's profoundly depressing very sad you know I'm like that's that's true and other people say that it's funny and that that's that's hopefully true for those folks so I I don't you know I'm not I I don't really read it as a comedy um, so I don't if, if if people are just you know just brutally depressed it's that's a fine response <laughs> actually I I, I want to there are so many uh, amazing sequences in the film um, I, I wanted to get you to maybe talk a little bit about some of them I can't believe nobody's asked about the baby uh, but uh, okay okay well okay, I let me ask my first <laughs> I, I wanted you to talk about the scene with um with Amy Simons um, uh, and uh, and how he um, that seems to be the scene where he I think he seems to just go the furthest in terms of um, reacting to the uh, yeah I know, think that it was you know that was uh, uh, kind of exciting to to push the the envelope with our sympathies there because I mean obviously it catches this woman in an exchange and there's a miscommunication and he calls her out and it's in character and you know what is this 
the vitriol from the character, you know, how much of that is him expressing himself, you know, uh, for, you know, elements of his on stage, off stage life. And, um, uh, but, I mean, there were a number of places where the movie needed to turn slippery and, and become l less naturalistic and more surreal. And then ultimately, you know, uh, where hopefully we're not analyzing it in that way anymore. It isn't about believability. It's just about a visceral or sort of more formal experience. Um, and that was, it was, it was difficult to find. And, and I think me and, and Michael Taylor, my co-editor, we realized that it can happen in a number of different places. Um, that, but for different people, there will be different moments where they, they say, well, that's not quite believable, and then they just relinquish themselves to the thing, you know. Um, I, you know, uh, so, so many films are, are, are read because I think we, we uh, you know, treat them like, like we did literature and we're taught to treat them like we, we did literature, where uh, they're decoded, essentially, you know, and uh, um, rather than experienced and sort of much the way we experience the world, you know, outside. And, and so I think that this has a little of each of those. It moves from more of the sort of, you know, safe literary decoding into something that's very slippery, and then the, you relinquish yourself to the thing and, and and deal with it on its terms and the internal logic of the formal attributes of it. Okay, and and then and the baby. <laughs> uh, I mean, there was I had an image of uh, a man in a tux with a a baby in a public bathroom, so. <laughs> you know, I mean, there, there those, they, you know, there is something uh, to the purgatorial kind of, you know, this this repetitive sort of circular, uh, unending cycle, and uh, um, uh, public restrooms seem to be a part of that. Yes. This person wondered about the film's gender politics. Yeah. Um, I mean, this, you know, uh, uh, my movies have, I, I have a lot of problems with male identity and masculinity and, and uh, the, 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 uh, the social requirements of it and things, even as a, as a young person, you know, and uh, um, I think these, these, you know, there's a lot to this movie about the sort of end, the natural and, and uh, welcome end to the you know, a white European male in, in, as the dominant force in, in, in American culture. Um, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think that means that, 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 that there, is, there needs to be a divide between, uh, you know, the sexes in the thing, um, that, that there's the, the, the concept of the daughter um, that, uh, as opposed to the reality of the daughter and, you know, uh, it was necessary in like the 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 bar scene with Amy um, that we we contended with the protagonist and it was difficult for us to to deal with him and our sympathies moved over to 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 the woman and and that was a tripping point for for you know his fall and this sort of thing. This question was about the comedian's sexuality or lack thereof. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I. I there's just something, you know. There's something of the of the the boy and the offstage character, you know, the the, the pre-sexual kind of, you know, uh, identity. This sort of like that more of that blank slate, you know. I think that he moves through it. So I did. Yeah, I I I love sort of the, the aspirational element of the daughter as 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 an ideal of 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 both the woman and and family. Uh, seem to to be fitting because it, particularly because it corresponds to the aspirational propulsion of you know American culture and movies and cinema and uh, foreign policy and <laughs> fun things like that. Are there any more hands? Any last ones? Back. Yeah, yeah. At the, I thought I saw a hand in the back. Yes. This person wondered about the process of working with the other two co-writers. Well, I mean, Greg essentially created the Neil Hamburger persona that we borrow for the for, for the film. So, uh, um, you know, and a lot of this was seeing how far we could pull away from that or stretch his attachment to that. And um, uh, Tim, 
uh, was instrumental in the, the the origin of the thing, and we we went and stayed in, in some of these locations, which which Greg, um, the protagonist, the uh, the Neil character, had he played through those a lot. I mean, he'd played in Bakersfield and a lot of these. He'd been to a lot of these places. Well, well those clubs are fictional. He'd been through these areas and uh, been to those bathrooms, and uh, um, you know, it was it was it was. Uh, it was it was fun to sort of build it around this the structural equivalency in his his personal life. Um, at least those really the more mundane elements there. No, not really. It's not that tidy. <laughs> I mean, we we the three of us did some some of the treatment work together, and then you know I took it and and uh, uh, built a lot of the environmental things around, and then checked back with Greg about certain elements of the offstage character, and then we. You know, developed certain certain things and that like that. All right, we can take one final question. So, good one. Yes. This is a question about uh, whether it was a similar process working with Tim Heidecker in the comedy. No, I think Tim is a much more like Greg. Uh, Greg is a very quiet person, and like uh, uh, Tim is not. Uh, no, it was it was different. I mean, they 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 they're friends and they live in a in a, in a universe that I don't pretend to entirely understand. Um, and and you know, uh, but uh, 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 yeah. So, um, I'd love to thank a few a few a few yeah, people. Please. My my producers, uh, uh, George Rush and Alec Lipschultz and Ryan Zacharias, um, and uh, Darius Van Armen's here and Champ Bennett and uh, these people I'm indebted to and wouldn't be able to have made this without it and a lot of other people that um, uh, uh, I have a lot of gratitude for and to yourself and everybody for having having us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you all for coming. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org. F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.